Section 7 of The Confidence Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M.B. The Confidence Man, His Masquerade by Herman Melville. Chapter 13. The man with the traveling cap evinces much humanity and in a way which would seem to show him to be one of the most logical of optimists. Years ago, a grave American savant being in London, observed at an evening party there a certain coxcomical fellow, as he thought, an absurd ribbon in his lapel and full of smart persiflage, whisking about to the admiration of as many as were disposed to admire. Great was the savant's disdain, but chancing ere long to find himself in a corner with the jackanapes, got into conversation with him, when he was somewhat ill-prepared for the good sense of the jackanapes but was altogether thrown aback upon subsequently being whispered by a friend that the jackanapes was almost as great a savant as himself, being no less a personage than Sir Humphrey Davy. The above anecdote is given just here by way of an anticipative reminder to such readers as, from the kind of jaunty levity or what may have passed for such hitherto for the most part appearing in the man with the traveling cap, may have been tempted into a more or less hasty estimate of him that such readers, when they find the same person as they presently will capable of philosophic and humanitarian discourse, no mere casual sentence or two as heretofore at times, but solidly sustained throughout an almost entire sitting, that they may not, like the American savant, be thereupon betrayed into any surprise incompatible with their own good opinion of their previous penetration. The merchant's narration being ended, the other would not deny but that it did in some degree affect him. He hoped he was not without proper feeling for the unfortunate man, but he begged to know in what spirit he bore his alleged calamities. Did he despond, or have confidence? The merchant did not, perhaps, take the exact import of the last member of the question, but answered that if whether the unfortunate man was becomingly resigned under his affliction or no was the point, he could say for him that resigned he was, and to an exemplary degree, for not only so far as known did he refrain from any one-sided reflections upon human goodness and human justice, but there was observable in him an air of chastened reliance, and at times tempered cheerfulness. Upon which the other observed, that since the unfortunate man's alleged experience could not be deemed very conciliatory towards a view of human nature better than human nature was, it largely resounded to his fair-mindedness as well as piety that, under the alleged dissuasives apparently so from philanthropy, he had not, in a moment of excitement, been warped over to the ranks of the misanthropes. He doubted not, also, that with such a man his experience would, in the end, act by a complete and beneficent inversion, and so far from shaking his confidence in his kind, confirm it and rivet it, which would the more surely be the case did he, the unfortunate man, at last become satisfied, as sooner or later he probably would, that in the distraction of his mind his goneril had not in all respects had fair play. At all events, the description of the lady, Charity could not but regard as more or less exaggerated, and so far unjust. The truth probably was that she was a wife with some blemishes mixed with some beauties. But when the blemishes were displayed, her husband, no adept in the female nature, had tried to use reason with her instead of something far more persuasive. 
hence his failure to convince and convert. The act of withdrawing from her seemed, under the circumstances, abrupt. In brief, there were probably small faults on both sides, more than balanced by large virtues, and one should not be hasty in judging. When the merchant, strange to say, opposed views so calm and impartial, and again with some warmth deplored the case of the unfortunate man, his companion, not without seriousness, checked him, saying that this would never do, that, though but in the most exceptional case, to admit the existence of unmerited misery, more particularly if alleged to have been brought about by unhindered arts of the wicked, such an admission was, to say the least, not prudent, since with some it might unfavorably bias their most important persuasions. Not that those persuasions were legitimately servile to such influences, because, since the common occurrences of life could never, in the nature of things, steadily look one way and tell one story, as flags in the trade wind, hence, if the conviction of a providence, for instance, were in any way made dependent upon such variabilities as everyday events, the degree of that conviction would, in thinking minds, be subject to fluctuations akin to those of the stock exchange during a long and uncertain war. Here he glanced aside at his transfer book, and after a moment's pause continued. It was of the essence of a right conviction to the divine nature, as with a right conviction of the human, that, based less on experience than intuition, it rose above the zones of weather. When now the merchant, with all his heart, coincided with this, as being a sensible as well as religious person he could not but do, his companion expressed satisfaction that, in an age of some distrust on such subjects, he could yet meet with one who shared with him, almost to the full, so sound and sublime a confidence. Still, he was far from the illiberality of denying that philosophy duly bounded was not permissible. Only he deemed it at least desirable that, when such a case as that alleged of the unfortunate man was made the subject of philosophic discussion, it should be so philosophized upon as not to afford handles to those unblessed with the true light. For but to grant that there was so much as a mystery about such a case might by those persons be held for a tacit surrender of the question. And, as for the apparent license temporarily permitted sometimes to the bad over the good, as was by implication alleged with regard to Goneril and the unfortunate man, it might be injudicious there to lay too much polemic stress upon the doctrine of future retribution as the vindication of present impunity. For though, indeed, to the right-minded that doctrine was true, and of sufficient solace, yet with the perverse, the polemic mention of it might but provoke the shallow, though mischievous conceit, that such a doctrine was but tantamount to the one which should affirm that providence was not now, but was going to be. In short, with all sorts of cavillers, it was best, both for them and everybody, that whoever had the true light should stick behind the secure Malakoff of confidence, and not be tempted forth to hazardous skirmishes on the open ground of reason. Therefore he deemed it unadvisable in the good man, even in the privacy of his own mind, or in communion with a congenial one, to indulge in too much latitude of philosophizing, 
or indeed of compassionating, since this might beget an indiscreet habit of thinking and feeling, which might unexpectedly betray him upon unsuitable occasions. Indeed, whether in private or public, there was nothing which a good man was more bound to guard himself against than, on some topics, the emotional unreserve of his natural heart. For that the natural heart, in certain points, was not what it might be, men had been authoritatively admonished. But he thought he might be getting dry. The merchant, in his good nature, thought otherwise, and said that he would be glad to refresh himself with such fruit all day. It was sitting under a ripe pulpit, and better such a seat than under a ripe peach-tree. The other was pleased to find that he had not, as he feared, been prosing, but would rather not be considered in the formal light of a preacher. He preferred being still received in that of the equal and genial companion. To which end, throwing still more of sociability into his manner, he again reverted to the unfortunate man. Take the very worst view of that case. Admit that his goneril was indeed a goneril. How fortunate to be at last rid of this goneril, both by nature and by law! If he were acquainted with the unfortunate man, instead of condoling with him, he would congratulate him. Great good fortune had this unfortunate man. Lucky dog, he dared say, after all. To which the merchant replied that he earnestly hoped it might be so, and at any rate he tried his best to comfort himself with the persuasion that, if the unfortunate man was not happy in this world, he would, at least, be so in another. His companion made no question of the unfortunate man's happiness in both worlds, and presently calling for some champagne, invited the merchant to partake, upon the playful plea that, whatever notions other than felicitous ones he might associate with the unfortunate man, a little champagne would readily bubble away. At intervals they slowly quaffed several glasses in silence and thoughtfulness. At last the merchant's expressive face flushed, his eye moistly beamed, his lips trembled with an imaginative and feminine sensibility. Without sending a single fume to his head, the wine seemed to shoot to his heart and begin soothsaying there. Ah! he cried, pushing his glass from him. Ah! wine is good, and confidence is good, but can wine or confidence percolate down through all the stony strata of hard considerations? and drop warmly and ruddily into the cold cave of truth? Truth will not be comforted. Led by dear charity, lured by sweet hope, fond fancy essays his feet, but in vain. Mere dreams and ideals, they explode in your hand, leaving naught but the scorching behind. Why, why, why? In amaze at the burst, Bless me, if in vino veritas be a true saying, then for all the fine confidence you professed with me just now, distrust, deep distrust, underlies it, and ten thousand strong like the Irish rebellion breaks out in you now. That wine, good wine, should do it upon my soul, half seriously, half humorously securing the bottle, you shall drink no more of it. Wine was meant to gladden the heart, not grieve it to heighten confidence, not depress it. Sobered, 
shamed, all but confounded by this raillery, the most telling rebuke under such circumstances, the merchant stared about him, and then, with altered mien, stammeringly confessed that he was almost as much surprised as his companion at what had escaped him. He did not understand it. He was quite at a loss to account for such a rhapsody popping out of him unbidden. It could hardly be the champagne. He felt his brain unaffected. In fact, if anything, the wine had acted upon it something like white of egg in coffee, clarifying and brightening. <laughs> brightening? Brightening it may be, but less like the white of egg in coffee than like stove luster on a stove. Black brightening. Seriously, I repent calling for the champagne. To a temperament like yours, champagne is not to be recommended. Pray, my dear sir, do you feel quite yourself again? Confidence restored? I hope so. I think I may say it is so. But we have had a long talk, and I think I must retire now. So saying, the merchant rose, and, making his adieus, left the table with the air of one mortified at having been tempted by his own honest goodness, accidentally stimulated into making mad disclosures, to himself as to another, of the queer, unaccountable caprices of his natural heart. Chapter 14. Worth the consideration of those to whom it may prove worth considering. As the last chapter was begun with a reminder looking forwards, so the present must consist of one glancing backwards. To some it may raise a degree of surprise that one so full of confidence as the merchant has throughout shown himself, up to the moment of his late sudden impulsiveness, should, in that instance, have betrayed such a depth of discontent. He may be thought inconsistent, and even so he is. But for this is the author to be blamed? True, it may be urged that there is nothing a writer of fiction should more carefully see to, as there is nothing a sensible reader will more carefully look for than that, in the depiction of any character, its consistency should be preserved. But this, though at first blush seeming reasonable enough, may, upon a closer view, prove not so much so. For how does it couple with another requirement, equally insisted upon, perhaps, that, while to all fiction is allowed some play of invention, yet fiction based on fact should never be contradictory to it. And is it not a fact that in real life a consistent character is a rara avis? Which being so, the distaste of readers to the contrary sort in books can hardly arise from any sense of their untrueness. It may rather be from perplexity as to understanding them, but if the acutest sage be often at his wit's ends to understand living character, shall those who are not sages expect to run and read character in those mere phantoms which flit along a page like shadows along a wall? That fiction where every character can by reason of its consistency be comprehended at a glance either exhibits but sections of character making them appear for holes, or else is very untrue to reality while, on the other hand, that author who draws a character, even though in common view incongruous in its parts, as the flying squirrel, and at different periods as much at variance with itself as the butterfly is with the caterpillar into which it changes, may yet, in so doing, be not false, but faithful to facts. If reason be judge, 
no writer has produced such inconsistent characters as nature herself has it must call for no small sagacity in a reader unerringly to discriminate in a novel between the inconsistencies of conception and those of life as elsewhere experience is the only guide here but as no one man can be coextensive with what is it may be unwise in every case to rest upon it when the duck-billed beaver of australia was first brought stuffed to england the naturalists appealing to their classifications maintained that there was in reality no such creature the bill in the specimen must needs be in some way artificially stuck on but let nature to the perplexity of the naturalists produce her duck-billed beavers as she may lesser authors some may hold have no business to be perplexing readers with duck-billed characters always they should represent human nature not in obscurity but transparency which indeed is the practice with most novelists and is perhaps in certain cases some way felt to be a kind of honor rendered them to their kind but whether it involve honor or otherwise might be mooted considering that if these waters of human nature can be so readily seen through it may be either that they are very pure or very shallow upon the whole it might be thought that he who in view of its inconsistencies says of human nature the same that in view of its contrasts is said of the divine nature that it is past finding out thereby evinces a better appreciation of it than he who by always representing it in a clear light leaves it to be inferred that he clearly knows all about it but though there is a prejudice against inconsistent characters in books yet the prejudice bears the other way when what seemed at first their inconsistency afterwards by the skill of the writer turns out to be their good keeping the great masters excel in nothing so much as this very particular they challenge astonishment at the tangled web of some character and then raise admiration still greater at their satisfactory unravelling of it in this way throwing open sometimes to the understanding even of school misses the last complications of that spirit which is affirmed by its creator to be fearfully and wonderfully made at least something like this is claimed for certain psychological novelists nor will the claim be here disputed yet as touching this point it may prove suggestive that all those sallies of ingenuity having for their end the revelation of human nature on fixed principles have by the best judges been excluded with contempt from the ranks of the sciences palmistry physiognomy phrenology psychology likewise the fact that in all ages such conflicting views have by the most eminent minds been taken of mankind would as with other topics seem some presumption of a pretty general and pretty thorough ignorance of it which may appear the less improbable if it be considered that after poring over the best novels professing to portray human nature the studious youth will still run risk of being too often at fault upon actually entering the world whereas had he been furnished with a true delineation it ought to fare with him something as with a stranger entering map in hand boston town the streets may be very crooked he may often pause but thanks to his true map he does not hopelessly lose his way 
nor to this comparison can it be an adequate objection that the twistings of the town are always the same and those of human nature subject to variation the grand points of human nature are the same today they were a thousand years ago the only variability in them is in expression not in feature but as in spite of seeming discouragement some mathematicians are yet in hopes of hitting upon an exact method of determining the longitude the more earnest psychologists may in the face of previous failures still cherish expectations with regard to some mode of infallibly discovering the heart of man but enough has been said by way of apology for whatever may have seemed amiss or obscure in the character of the merchant so nothing remains but to turn to our comedy or rather to pass from the comedy of thought to that of action End of section 7